You know you've got to sing along. But don't you know This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Our guest today is Scout Ross. Scott, are you ready to be great today? I sure am. Scott is a behavior analyst and body language expert with a focus on healthcare. He holds multiple certificates in advanced interrogation training, has been trained alongside the FBI, Secret Service, U.S. Military Intelligence, and Department of Defense. His extensive training, education, and practice of nonverbal communication has made Scott an expert and consultant to law enforcement, as well as Fortune 500 CEOs, attorneys, executives, wealth managers, financial advisors, and entertainers. Scott, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this because last time that we tried to hook up, you got sick or something. Yeah, sick and on schedule, both crazy. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, you feeling the, better? Yeah, feeling better. Yeah. And then we're, we're all busy, right? But isn't the key to be not to be busy, but to be, but to be productive, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the key. That's the key. So, Scott, what is a behavior analyst and a body language expert? Well, basically, we're observers. And we pay attention to what people do and we make decisions about what they're going to do next. So in the law enforcement arena, that's what they're mostly interested in is, is what they're getting ready to do and uh, or in the, in the form of it I talk about. And as an analyst, you analyze that and you say, how can I, how can I write this down and tell people about this so they can uh, do it? It's like you can train them in it or teach them about it later on. So, they, so when they see these things happen in human behavior, those things, there are no absolutes in body language, so it doesn't mean just because I do this, it means something. So you, you have to put in their, their head, um, if you see this series of things happening, most likely what's going to happen next is this. doesn't mean it's going to, but most likely that's going to happen next. So Scott, how do like different cultures, uh, uh, demographics play into this? Different cultures communicate different ways, right? How does that play into the body language expertise? Well, the, that's the first thing you, you start making decisions about is the, are the nonverbals that this person's brain trying to tell you or they're showing you, are you seeing uh, behavior that's cultural or are you seeing behavior that's limbic coming from the brain? I mean, that's being fired off by your limbic system. As far as cultural, uh, when I, I was um, the entrepreneur in residence at the National Entrepreneur Center from 2011 to 2017. And what I did there was train the startups and the new entrepreneurs how to create a pitch and then pitch it so they got funded. You know, and so that was, that was what I did. And I ran across, and what I would do as well, and people would invest, or and still do, invest in, in companies that I work with because they would see that they were honest because they knew what I did for a living. And they would say, okay, this person's got to be okay. So as I, as I talk to these people, I sort of vet them and, and get a little, uh, and analyze them, I guess, and decide and make, you know, make decisions about what to ask them to see if they're being honest or not. And there was a, a guy, that, and he was from another country. And as we were talking, and this is one of those things I totally forgot about and slipped by me. Every time I would, he would say something, I get people to talk about as they're relaxed, talk about yes and no. Did you do this? How do you like that? Oh, I love it. And when somebody says, oh, I love that so much, when they, they sort of close their eyes and they say, they shake their head no, but they're giving you a, a positive answer. That's just something humans do a lot of times. 
So I, I took it with this guy as, you know, that's, that's normal. I see that as I was gathering my info on him. Then as we would go through, I would ask him questions about his finances and background and, and things that had, that had happened in the situations they'd been in so far up to this point before we started, I started training him. And it just wasn't, something wasn't right. Every time I would, would expect a yes answer and his head should go just barely like this as he talked, it would do this. And I was like, this is, this is not right. I felt really weird about the guy. The whole time, everything that was supposed to be yes was no. Come to find out later on, I said, listen, let me, let, me, let me ask you something. Something's not right here. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to tell you what I'm seeing. For what I do for a living, this is what looks wrong to me. When you say, when you're saying yes about something, your head is slightly shaking no. So that makes me really distrust you. When you're saying something you're supposed to be positive about or negative about, your head is saying yes. I can't remember the country. I should, I wasn't ready for that question. But in their country, this is yes and this is no. And I totally forgot. I, I didn't take that because, you know, you get to a point where I know everything. I tell all about human behavior. You know, so I thought I knew everything. I was like, yeah, he's a foreigner. I know how to do it. And son of a gun, I, I totally missed that part. I know when I, when I got the army, I was a seafood uh, HR manager at seafood plant in Alaska, and we had some Somalians working there, and some Filipinos. Somalians are loud, and the Filipinos like they're always angry, and they're always yelling, like, "No, that's their culture. That's how they communicate." You know, loud and angry, and the Filipinos like more reserved, more quiet. You know, and so the Filipinos thought the Somalians were being disrespectful, and angry, and rude to them, and the Somalians thought the Filipinos were like being the same because they talk too quiet, right? Uh, you have people from Japan. And you have people from America and you have people from Britain. You have people from Germany. Everybody's from a different place in the world. And the Americans, before this meeting starts, everybody's outside of the meeting. And you'll see in their own little spots, their own little groups. And you'll see the Japanese talking. They'll look up at the Americans and they'll kind of smile. Looks like they're laughing. The Americans think they're making fun of us. You know, this isn't cool. Huh? So there, there's this weird cultural thing that starts happening. And then the Americans, looks like they're being mean to the Japanese. So the Europeans go, well, that figures about that's about America's speed. That's the way those people are. And then you see the Germans down there looking frowning because they see all this stuff going on. So there's not having an understanding of the cultural um, differences in the way we react to things makes a big difference because the Japanese people are smiling because they're nervous. And it looks like they're laughing because they are laughing. That's what they do when they're nervous, especially in a situation like that. And it just goes against everything you'd think which they should be, they should be stoic and hello, how are you all that? But they get the, you know, the shits and giggles and they kind of laugh a little bit. That's just what they do. So that causes um, a little rift in uh, the situation. So cleaning those up for a lot of companies is important and they don't even know they have those problems. Yeah, that's very true. So Scott, you, you've done a lot of pitch coaching. What makes a great pitch? The understanding, and this is going to go against everything everybody thinks about pitching, is you're not pitching to get this person to invest in you. You're pitching to get this person to help you. And as soon as you can wrap your head around that, there's a, there's an approach, and I, I call it, I've ended up calling it how to create an investable pitch. And there's an approach that that I train these people to take, where as you go down this little road toward what I you know toward the brain, you're trying to get the brain opened up. And you say things and do things and you do things with your body's language and, and there are pauses about 50, 60 little things that have them stack in this pitch as you go through the problem, solution, the money problems and all that. So by the time you get to the ask, you want that brain opened up so you can put your, your, you can plant in there. I want to help this person. And as soon as you see this person doing specific things that tell you they've disengaged from what's happening and they're thinking up there and they've decided that's what I want to do. I can help this person. 
and you want to say something and do a couple of things that close that brain up. As soon as that brain's closed, they start thinking, how can I help? Oh, wait, I don't, I, I, I can, I give money. That's what I can do. I can give money. So that's the, that's the approach. That's, and as soon as you can get your head around not wanting to go for money, but going for help, that's the way I've done it anyway. That makes all the difference in the world. Everybody I've ever worked with to the man, to the woman, to this day from 2011 to this day has been funded. Not just, you know, 50, 100, 200, 300, tons of them, like two or 3,000. It's over, it's over 2,000. I know it's getting kind of close to 3,000. And my, the, the money I've helped raise is just a little bit over half a billion dollars. Granted, not everybody gets, you know, a million dollars. Some get 10 million, some get 30 million, some get more than that. But there are people who get 100,000, 300,000, 60,000. And in Nashville, the pitch is most everyone is looking for, um, the, the way I always set it up is, is to ask for 1.2 million because 30 grand to, you know, 300 grand, those types of things, those are going to be angel investors. And, and in my experience, when you have angel investors, a lot of times it's phone calls from every one of them. You know, if there's like, are there five or six, or how's it going? What's all going to, but if you approach it from this way where you get them to want to help you, you get one call and they've all talked about it and it's, what, what can we do to help? See what we can find out what we can do to help them. That's what happens most of the time after you approach it from that angle. So Scott, it's like most founders, they go pitch to ask them for money. I mean, that's a huge paradigm switch from going from asking for money to asking for help. How do you convince founders that make that switch in, in their presentation? Well, that, that comes from uh, interrogation skills. You kind of tell them how it's going to, how things are and what's going to happen next as I teach them. I say, here's what, and I tell them, we don't look at this as it's manipulation because it's not. We talk about how it's persuasion, you know? So I tell them that's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're trying to get this. Now, when you go forward from there, your next round of money, you're asking, you're asking for money. But that first go, go around where everybody's looking, like, well, this might work. It may not work. That's where you initially get them excited about what's happening if they're the first time uh, seeing it or that first group of people that comes through the scene or the first five or 10 people you uh, pitch to. Because sometimes it takes a minute to get funding. But that's, that's um, you, you, you go, here's how much money we need. You get into the, to the here's what we, we need real money, and you focus on that. Once you get past that first, um, that first investment, in other words, that first round. So, Scott, for you seeing how many times do founders have to pitch investors before they, before they get some investors? Like I've heard numbers like as high as 100, you know, like, isn't that a numbers game, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But sometimes you'll get from the first pitch. I've seen that happen twice. So I don't want to say sometimes that those were anomalies. You know, those were the companies were great and the pitches were, were they pitched really well and it went really well and they got they got funded from their first pitch. However, if you're going to pitch somewhere. The key there is you don't want to you don't want to find oh I think all these people will invest you want to do that you know so there's a time for that but you want to find the people you know aren't going to invest you know have they're not going to do it at all and are not interested because that's where you rehearse you do four to five of those that's one of the, that's one of the rules you go because you know they're not going to but you've got to get your cadence down you got to see how people are going to react because you're nervous those first two or three by the time you hit the fifth one. You're good to go. You're like, I can do this. I know, I know that it's almost like a script in your mind. It's not a script. It's a little path that you just got to stay on. But as soon as you understand what that path is and you start going down it, the world changes for those people. But you've got to find out who's not going to do it, whether it's a friend of your father's or something, or it's a, you know, somebody else who you know is not going to do it. You've got to get a meeting with them and pitch to them. So you get nervous going to the office and you think, God, this might work. It's not going to work. 
but you want to make sure you go in and that's where you rehearse like anything else. You know, everything is, is, um, you got to practice and that's where you practice, not just on each other. Yeah. Rehearsal key. Like Steve Jobs gets a lot of credit. There's early for a great, great presenter, but you forget he, he like you rehearsed hundreds and hundreds of times, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, he would spend days doing that. That's all he did, you know, and, that, and, and rightfully so, but man, yeah, he was, he was the, He's the King Kong of that stuff, man. He had that down. I mean, down the details, the pinch be on the left side, not the right side. This should be here. This should be there. I mean, put this person here. Put the, I mean, I mean, he was like, yeah, the master of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you've got, when you're talking about your slides, even you'll notice his slides are just, just, they're very sparse. A lot of people, what they'll do when they go in with, 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 a, with their uh, PowerPoint or their keynote is they'll have a bunch of words up there. Nobody, why would you, you know, I've had people come in when they first come to, would come to the entrepreneur center, they would come in to pitch and all, everything they were saying was just written on the, on their slides. And it was like, we just stopped and go like, maybe you can't, yeah. well, we, don't, we don't need you. I can read your slide. Yeah. I don't need you like exactly. leave. <laughs> exactly. So you usually have one picture and four to five words at the most. And those will cue you on what to say. When you get to your finances, that's a different situation. That's different. You just can't have like money or something like that on there. And you're talking about money. You've got to be able to show them how the math and everything works. So there, there, there are the analytical slides. We've got to have that. But if you're capturing their attention and getting their brain opened up, there are, you know, you, your slides have to be extremely sparse on the word parts because you want them not concentrating on the slides and trying to read as you're talking. You want them looking at you. They get that picture in their mind and they, and they pay attention to you. Scott, so opposite question, what makes a bad pitch? Um, somebody who, who, is, is, who doesn't understand what's happening on the other side of the table or someone who doesn't understand what's happening to the group they're pitching to. For example, if I were to ask you or ask most people, when you're pitching someone, what is the facial expression you want to see? What's the body language you want to see of someone you're pitching to? And what would you say? Somebody's open, at least paying attention, intent, you know. Yeah, a lot of people want to see this. They don't want to see them smiling, shaking their head, yes, and just, you know. But what happens there is that person is not going to invest. They're not into it. I mean, the first two or three minutes, they may do like, okay, I'm kind of nervous and I don't know these people. Hello, how you doing? And I'll talk to you. Uh, and, and they'll smile that way. But as you get going, you don't want that. You want them to totally disengage from, from thinking about you as a person and go up in their head. That's what you need because what you're seeing when they start doing this number doing this and biting on things and pulling on their mouth, doing stuff they wouldn't do is you're, if you and I were talking, like if we just met, I wouldn't be talking to you, pulling my mouth and goofing around, pulling my face. But, but if this person is, is thinking about the future, in other words, in the next month, next three years, what you're presenting them, here's what's going to happen. You want them up there thinking, is this going to work for me in two years and three years? Are these numbers okay? I don't know. What do you say earlier? I got to, cause I got to go back and tell my wife about this. When I do, she's either going to, it's going to be one of those videos of me on YouTube getting whatever this is stuck up or, you know, I'm just going to lose. I don't know what's going to happen. I've got, or I've got to take it back to the office. I'm just going to think about that because a lot of times it'll be someone who said, Hey, go listen to this pitch and see what you think. So they'll get up in their head and think about it. So you want that disengagement between me and you, not all the way, but some, so they can, and you see them start doing these things that tell you they're thinking up in their head. And a lot, that's part of the path you're, you're, that's what you're trying to create as you go through this. Cause that's those, that's one of the milestones on the path to getting funded. And I'll take it one step further. Like, I, like a lot of people that pitch, the people, the, the pitch, the pitch of the phones, they'll get, okay, they're not paying attention. But in my mind, 
okay, they put the phone because they're Googling something about my business, they're Googling something about this presentation. At least, at least you hope so anyway, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, don't be thrown by that because if that's what's happening, great, let them do that. They're not hearing what you say. Maybe they're going to have a meeting with you later on because they miss those parts, you know, or maybe they're with somebody and they won't. But what you're actually going for in that first pitch is another meeting. Rarely does somebody, like I said, I've had it happen two times and I've never had anybody not get funded. But you, rarely... Do you, do you get someone funded out of the gate? But you want, you want, or what you're going for is that next meeting, not funding. You're going for funding, but you want to help. And they, you want them to talk to you about it and be able to, to discover what's happening with you and your team and your business and how those things are working. It's, I mean, it's so imper- important. It's these things people don't think about. They think, I'll show them how the money works. And sometimes that's great. And a lot of times that works wonderfully. I just happen to go down this road where I've chosen to do it this way and it works great. Scott, so what do founders get wrong about the process for preparing for the pitch? They, they don't keep enough, they don't like research enough of the investors, they don't practice the pitch itself. What do you find they're getting wrong about the actual process of preparing to pitch? They don't focus on selling or creating, uh, whether, whether it's a product or whether it's a, a service, whatever it is, they don't focus on customers ahead of time sometimes. Say so it's an idea and here's the idea. But the, you say, well, in other words, they'll say, well, how many have you sold so far? This, when the, well, I haven't sold it yet. I haven't, you know, which is understandable if it's something really expensive. You can't, you know, design a car and do it like that. But when it comes to products and some services or apps and things, you've got to show that that people are interested in it. You've got to show that there's a, a market for that. So a lot of times they, they'll think they understand it. And it takes a while to, to get a handle on that because there's, you know, you have to know where to go to get information. You go, oh, I need some help here. How do I find out how to do this? Um, so so that that's that pretty much. I mean, that's the. So Scott, I've been finding recently Nashville actually has a pretty vibrant and big and growing startup scene. Can you talk oh, about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, it's great. It's great. We have a, we have a great um, entrepreneurial ecosystem, uh, which was um, sort of, there's a guy named Michael Burcham who ran the uh, entrepreneur center. He's one of the guys when the entrepreneur center was opened by um, the, by the Ingram family was involved. There's a lot of, a lot of different um, investors involved. Um, he was the guy they got to run it. And he's one of those guys that, that he was the CEO and knows how to run a company. And so he's, he's the one that decided how we approach this. And it sort of, it started blowing up because he's sort of the, he's a great CEO, but he's the guy you want. If you're starting a company, that's the kind of guy you want because he understood how to get the town politically, not like politics, but politically within the financial world, how to get people to be interested and become a part of it and, and how to talk to people that would be, uh, um, interested in being an entrepreneur, but, but finding the good ones, the, the good uh, entrepreneurs. <clears throat> and he'd surrounded himself with people like uh, David first, who's a, <clears throat> who's uh, one of the, one of the heads of the entrepreneurial uh, department at uh, Vanderbilt Owens um, school of business management. And he, he got this group of people to, to help build this thing and become, and taught people how First, Dr. Furs knows how to be a mentor. Michael did, but he got other people like Sean Glinter, who's a who's like the Yoda of Nashville when it comes to startups. And he's all, you know, he's one of those guys. So he's got a big startup going. He's in where's he now? He's in Germany right now, working on his biotech company. But this guy, Michael Bertram, saw how you could turn how you could have an um, an ecosystem for um, entrepreneurs and sort of executed that. And it was it was almost like. He treated it almost the way I saw it because I was in the in the music business for a long time as a record company, and that's the way we discuss it. I could discuss it with him because that's my understanding of it. And the record company was the Entrepreneur Center, 
And then they would, they would, in other words, they would, your album was your product or your service. And he would, they would, they would, when you came to this thing called Jumpstart Foundry, which was the incubator, then um, they would give you, I think it was five grand or something or 10 grand. And that's, that was your money to make your record or your product or your service. And you would build it from there. And then they would gather up people to, to pitch to, I mean, to, to the, to the um, investors in Nashville. And then it started going from Nashville to Boston, to Austin, to, um, you know, Silicon Valley, to New York. And so it just started growing. And he's one of those guys that could talk to anybody and say, here's what we're doing. You should come check this out. Not in those words, but he's one of those guys that know, that's got that figured out that can do it. So he played an important part in that. And now it's, it's huge. I mean, it's really, really big. We're the healthcare Mecca, you know, Nashville is. So that's where all the healthcare um, money is or start. And it started from, I'll give you, if you were interested in this, this may be horrifically boring, but the, the healthcare industry is so big here because of the insurance industry, which started from the Grand Ole Opry. The artists and stars on the Grand Ole Opry, what they would do is they'd be on the radio and they were stars and they would go out in, into you know, into the country performing and they would play at different radio stations. That's how you did it back in the old days. And they would sell insurance. That's what they did. They sold insurance for, at, for the, um, Oh, something life. I can't remember the name of it. I should remember that. I'm coming on like a big historian, but that's how they, uh, that's how they made money because they made money when they sold it. So that sort of made Nashville the hub of insurance and health insurance and health care companies started uh, popping up here. So that's, that's where that started. I had no idea about that. That's an interesting fact. Most people don't. Scott. So, so the startups in, in the Nashville community, are they able to raise most of the money from Nashville investors? Or they have to go to outside sources. Well, with it, with um, with what all I just said, you think, oh, it's got to be a great, easy place to go get money. It's tough here, man. It is so tough. Yeah, it's tough and, here in Seattle too. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really, but it's tough anywhere. They're giving away money. You know, it's not giving it away. Sometimes they are, but it's they're investing money. So you're and you're talking to people who are investing a bunch of money in, in a bunch of different things. So in Nashville, you're dealing with people, and there are fifteen or twenty people that you usually go pitch to or, or end up talking to. Um, the Ingram, uh, the Ingram's a potent over here for that. Um, and great, and great bit. Somebody, you, you don't have to worry about, you're not going to get, nothing going to happen to you. They're going to, you know, they're going to take advantage of you, those types of things. And the people here that's been cultivated are, are good people. You know, most of the, uh, the ones I granted, I get hired to go flip a con out of a company or see if somebody's not telling the truth about whether they're, in, what they're investing in, or they're going to invest you, or are they really going to invest it for the right reasons? So it's not bad money. In Nashville, that's rare. I mean, I've I've found maybe seven of those from 2011 to today that I've, um, you know, I call it flipping the, the con. But Nashville is um, it's a great it's a great place for the, for um, entrepreneurs. But it's like anywhere else, it's tough to get it's tough to get funding, especially if you're not in healthcare. Yeah, I can remember a stat somewhere that only one percent of companies get funded. I mean, one percent of all companies in the United States get funded. That's nothing. And just because you get funded is, does not mean you're going to make it either, right? No, not at all. That's, 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 that's one of your hurdles. You know, that's, that's, everybody thinks I'll get funded. It's going to happen. No, you're going to get funded. That's when you get started. You yeah, know, you, when you, you get funded, you get more problems. You got to take care of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got, especially as a CEO, there's a company called Scholar that I've been working with for a couple of years, S K O L L E R. And they deal with, they're dealing, they're, they're, they have an app where you'll download or you'll upload your uh, syllabus from your college to this app and it sends it to everyone in your classes. And it's really, it sounds really, oh, it's really easy. It's easy to do. It's a fantastic, and they're, they're blowing up. It's going well. 
But um, the CEO of that company, as hard as he tries every day, it's just he thinks the next day is going to be a little bit easier. And of course, it isn't. It never gets any easier. But he keeps saying, yeah, tomorrow's going to be better. That's the, that's the attitude to have. You know, it's going to be better tomorrow. It is because of what he's doing. But personally, it's taking, you know, it takes a toll on him. And it's, it's, it's taking a toll on him like it does every entrepreneur, you know. Scott, can you talk someone about the body language Frankenstein? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That now my writing or my business partner, Greg Harley, he's one of those guys that's written like 11 number one body language books. You should get some one of his books, one of the bunch he's got. The one I, I, I really like a lot is called um, I Can Read You Like a Book. Or there's one he's, he's called um, um, Lie, uh, Lie Spotting. There's another great one. So in, in one of his books, it was that book um, that I just told you about. He says, Greg says, if you don't pay attention to body, and I thought this was brilliant, if you don't pay close attention to what you're seeing in body language, if you're not observing what's really happening, and you see this and it means this, and you see somebody do this and you think it means that every time, then you're just putting together a Frankenstein's monster of body language. That's what you're doing. You're just plopping things together and you've got this person that every time they do this, it means this. Every time they do that, it means that. And I thought, Oh, body language Frankenstein, because the day before that I'd seen that, I got called by the TEDx people. Somebody had dropped out at, at, for the TEDx talks in, in Nashville. They said, can you do a TEDx talk? And I was like, yeah. So I put together a TEDx talk real quick, and I called it body language Frankenstein. So, And that deals with, for example, you'll see someone who is, um, you're going to a meeting, and they'll be breathing real heavy. And they'll be kind of looking weird, but they'll be... <laughs> looking nervous well you may not know that they came in late and they ran up the stairs instead of taking the elevator they ran up the second floor and they just came there and sat down just as the meeting started so they may look a little bit sweaty they may look a little bit, bit out of place they may look like they're winded which they should be since they'd run them done that you may see someone whose uh whose arms are crossed you may see someone stand there like this their arms are all crossed that doesn't mean someone is open or closed or whatever most of the time it just means their arms are crossed a lot of times that shows shows interest remember we were talking about this earlier when they start this stuff that could show interest because that could be where you settle in you're comfortable and you start talking granted you're looking at what would be called a barrier by having this arm up here and doing that these are our barriers but maybe they're more comfortable that way it doesn't mean they're not into what you have to say or closed off so when you, if you thought that about the breathing part was was weird then you've got a chest or a torso for your body language frankenstein if you think the arms are weird and you think that means something every time then you've got arms for your body language frankenstein if you think of the way someone scratches their nose i got a huge nose so i'm all the time goofing with mine if i get nervous or something happens but it doesn't mean i'm lying or telling the truth or not telling the truth but if you see that and you got a you got a nose you can plop onto your body language frankenstein so you start building this thing exactly what greg said i just ripped that off stole that from basically and built a ted talk around tedx talk around it and so that's what the basics is uh, are for that is um make sure you understand that just because you see somebody do something it doesn't mean the same thing every time everybody's different and those every move has something can, can mean two or three different things when because what you're looking for are or what i look for are groups of behaviors you know uh clusters of behaviors because if i just went like that it may mean nothing but if I started doing this stuff and then doing that and kept goofing when I know as I was talking and started kind of like this hopping thing going back and forth and kind of doing this, something's probably up. I'm either really focused on what you're telling. I'm totally disengaged from talking to you because I'm up here or something's wrong. I'm up here anyway, 
excuse me, thinking about the lie I'm getting ready to tell or thinking about what I just did and I've got to start covering that up. There's so many things that'll, that'll tell you something's up, but you have to know how to approach them correctly or you'll have a body language Frankenstein that you'll totally miss everything. Scott, so I'm pretty sure that when it was a 10-year-old Scott playing it out outside, 10-year-old Scott didn't say, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a body language expert. How do you come into this field? Well, I, I wanted to be a doctor. And my dad's a doctor, you know, and, and he would always tell me about um, bedside manner. That was his big thing. Cause I would say, well, look at this guy. What about what's wrong with this guy? And he would tell me when I was five, six years old about what was wrong with these people. You know, like we lived in a little bitty town called Louisa, Kentucky. And my dad for a while was the only doctor there. And the, the hospital was like this really big house. It was a couple of houses connected and he would do surgery and he would see patients. You know, he was the, he was there. He was the general, the GP, he was the surgeon, everything. And one day, and my mom would come and get me and my sister, and my brother, we'd be next door at the little grade school and she'd walk us down to the, to the hospital and we'd have lunch with him, you know, and we'd go in his office and his office was just this big closet and out there where the bed and stuff would be, if it was, if it were a house, that's where everybody was. They were sitting on these little benches and I saw, you know, I was in the first grade and I saw two guys I knew in there, Billy Elkins and Robert Bellamy. And I said, Hey, in other words, how you say is a six year old or how old I was. What are, they, what are they doing here? And, and, and there's Robert and Billy. What's wrong with them? And my dad goes, he looks like this. He goes, well, there's nothing wrong with Billy. He's here because he's pretending to be sick. And then Robert, he's got an earache and been up all night with his mother. And I was like, well, however you say as a kid, how do you, how do you know that? And he said, well, let's take a look at him. He said, now look at Billy. That was Billy Mead. He said, see how his legs are doing this on the, as he's sitting there, I said, yeah. He said, see, I was reading that little magazine. I think it was Highlights or something. But I said, yeah. He said, look how his mother looks. She looks like she's, she's rested and she's got her makeup and her hair down because we knew these people. I said, yeah. He said, that tells me that she's, she's got a good night's sleep. His legs are doing this and he's absorbed in that book, however you say it to a little kid. And he's not really concerned with that. But what's going to happen next is his mother is going to say something to him. And when she does, his eyebrows will go from being up to being down like this. They're going to go down and he's going to lean his head to the side and talk to her. And then she'll pat him on the arm because she's got her arm. She'll put her arm around and pat him on the arm and he'll look back down at that magazine. His eyebrows will go back and he'll start getting... Within two minutes, that happened. I was like, Good, it's, this is a miracle. I said, oh, that. I said well, what, what about Robert? How do you know about that? He said, well, look at Robert. And Robert had his hand on his ear. You know, as a, and I, I saw that, but I didn't put together as a kid. See how he's got his hand on his ear? Yeah. And see how his head is kind of sideways like that? And he's leaning on it? Yeah. See how his mother doesn't look like she said? And we knew her. She actually looks, looks like her hair isn't done right. She doesn't have any makeup on. And, and I said, yeah. And he said, she looks like she's been up all night. I said, yeah. And he said, well, and then Robert's just sitting there being all quiet. You know, his, his legs are together and he's humped. He's, he's laying against his mother. And his arms are, are, are squeezed together. And I said, yeah. He said, that, that, and his hands up here. It tells me something's hurting. It looks like it might be it's probably his ear. And I thought that was, I was like, oh my God, I got to learn. So from that day on, I was hooked. I was like, you got to tell me more. So he told me all about, and what he was doing, just, it's just bedside manner, you know? So he, he taught me what to look for as I grew up. He would bring home books and read me stuff, or he would tell me about this. The, how do you know? Like, I remember him telling me somebody wasn't being honest with him about, I can't remember what our discussion was, but there was a patient and we were talking about bedside manner and how important it was for him to know whether this person was an alcoholic or not because of the drugs they were giving him. You know, but that's what he was talking about because I still wanted to be a doctor at that time. And uh, so that's where my initial um, want to learn about it came from. And as odd as it is to this day, 
last year I found out I had cancer and I had thyroid cancer. They took my thyroid out. It's no big deal. It's one of those cancers you get. They take it out and that's, that's you know, you have some radiation done. That's it. And during that process, I saw and within the six month window, I saw the, the healthcare um, system here at the hospital that I was going to, I don't want to say the name, go from being, Hey, what's going on, Scott? How's it going, man? You know, when I go in, they knew me and everything was great to walk in and sign in a kiosk. I, w- I went in to have some tests done and do my radiation stuff. Then I was going to come back six months later and do the same tests. And when I came back six months later, the people out front were gone. There was still patients in there. And the people you would talk to that would that, that would do your financing or whatever, the money people were that were there, there was no window there. They would talk and you could see them smiling. And you'd go back to the doctor and he'd And all that was gone. It was signing at a kiosk, signing at the, yeah, it was an iPad. And when I went in, there was a couple of people, old people that were, weren't together, but they were sitting next to each other. That one would actually turn their iPad off and the little old woman, bless her heart, she didn't know how to work it. She didn't know what to do. So I just, and HIPAA would have had a field day in there or whatever. And I had to help her with hers and I had to help the old man get his turned on and, and get his stuff sent in. And then I did mine. It was just, it was horrible. So with the time, so I started thinking about that and talking to my dad about it. I said, that's why I already getting sued so much is because that, that, doctor-patient relationship has been severed by technology. So by the time they get back to see the doctor, they're pissed. You know, they're in a bad mood. The patient is, in other words. So if anything little goes wrong, they don't mind suing them. So that's why the malpractice cases are going through the roof right now. So I've put together um, a, the keynote I'm doing now and the training I'm doing is completely focused on, except for military stuff I'm, I'm doing right now, is completely focused on healthcare and how to fix that problem. So that's that's funny you should ask that because from when I was little, there was such a gap from being into healthcare and how it worked until this past year and a half ago where I was like, I'm gonna, here's, I know how to fix this. I know how to put it, just one person in there and how to talk to them, how their eyebrows should go up when they talk to somebody. So it looks like you know them when they first come in the room, those types of things. And the things you say to them, fire off oxytocin, makes them bond with that person. The nurse that comes and gets you and takes you back to where the doctor is, there's things she can do and say to fire off oxytocin and serotonin, make you connect with them or make you feel okay about being there. Just having somebody in the room is important uh, that that works there. And the way they look and the things they say and how they act. When you get to the doctor, there's, there's many things the doctor can do and say to make that bonding process happen. So there's, and the loyalty happen. So that person doesn't end up suing or go to another doctor. Dentists are having the problem uh, of, of the, the loyalty part. They'll, people go to the dentist and they'll tell what all's wrong. And when it's over, they okay, I'll go home. I got to talk to my wife about it or whatever. And they never come back or they'll go somewhere else for whatever reason. So there's, and the same process, I call it the patient engagement loop. You put that into effect and the whole thing goes away and everybody's fine. But that's, so it's, that's, I started when I was a kid and I just kept interested in it, kept being interested in it until today. You know, and there's just so many things humans do and, and the way they act and, and from politics to, you know, um, people at the grocery store to other drivers that are just, it's always fascinated me. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. I, mean, I, I definitely agree. Bedside matter is definitely a lost art form in the medical yeah. field. Yeah. Nobody, nobody talks about it or does anything about it anymore. And nobody's trying to fix that problem right now. So I think it's why I'm getting so many gigs talking about it. So, Scott, tell me if you agree or disagree and what your thoughts on this statement is. I've heard this before. Bad liars never get caught. I mean, excuse me. Bad liars always get caught. Great liars never get caught. Well, you can. Well, there are. Let me say this first. If you and I were to sit down and, and we're side by side and they brought somebody in and we said they're going to say something. We're going to ask them a question and they're going to answer it. 
And you're going to have to make decisions about whether they're being honest or not. Do you know what the odds are of you getting it compared to me getting it? I'll say 25%. My, you've got a 50-50 chance. I've got a 60-40 chance of getting it. I'm, a, I'm a little, just a little bit better. Just a little bit better because I know what to look for, and, but I have to ask more questions. There has to be more to it. The good liar is the person who looks relaxed and doing all that. But once you, uh, Greg Hartley and I are writing a book now about what we call the liar's loop. And it's a... Um, um, a, the lie cycle. We're going to call it one or the other. And that's what we talk about is how once you, you ask a question and it's what we do in interrogation. What are the questions you ask to get them from what we call the pitch? Well, you, you, something happens that engages you where you have to say, Oh, I've got to lie about this. And you create a lie. And then you have to go through the line. You say, okay, I've got to knock out the things that, that what they're going to ask me questions about. You do that. And they come around here and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready. In other words, I'm ready to go. And then the pitch for the lies when you actually let the lie go and you, and you pitch the lie, but you try to get them back into that in the, into that loop where they're um, they have to recreate that again. They have to create another lie to, to keep building. And so when you do that, they keep, they, it keeps building, building, building. So the initial liar is the one who can come in and make sure and they know how to engage you. The con men usually or the, or the grifter con men or whatever con grifters can engage you and, and make you feel comfortable and everything else, just like those pitches I'm talking about, except they do it in a really short um, amount of time, the way they do it, and they make you feel okay about them. And it's um, and once they do that, then they can start telling you things as they add these other things that make you like them more and the way their body language is. A lot of, most of the time, they don't even realize what they're doing. They just know, they call it, you know, motion and the way they put that on is this you know personality it's probably theirs anyway but that's what that personality does it just builds and stuff to an to to an end that's not good so the 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 bad liar a lot of times people think they know when someone's lying because they'll break eye contact that's how i know well guess what the person who breaks eye contact most likely is not the person lying to you the person who breaks eye contact is gonna be thinking like we talked about a minute ago thinking if you ask me What's 4,000 plus 2 minus 8 and divided by 6 plus 19? And then I went, let's see, 4,000. And I kept looking at you. It'd be weird. But if I went, uh, let's see. And I was trying to figure it out that way. That's one thing. The reason the liar keeps looking at you most of the time, there's studies that show this. I can, and I'm all about studies. So if you want to know anything where they are, let me know and I'll send you all stuff. Um, they look at you because they want to make sure you're believe, you believe them as they're lying to you. They won't break eye contact because they want to, they, their brain says, we got to keep looking at this so I don't have to add qualifiers to the story I'm telling. So if, if I'm telling you something, you start going, I want to know. I want to pay attention to see you. you know, I want to see that so I can add qualifiers to my lie to, to, to bump it up even more. Does that help? Yes, so it, it helps a lot. Yeah, it does. So you can be a great liar or a bad liar. And a lot of times the... the um, I think what makes a great liar is understanding how to get in and and make someone feel okay about what's happening as you're delivering the lie. In other words, or there's an art to it, you know. And once you see that pattern of what most of them do, you can start saying something's not right about this. If you see someone lying, you'll get that little feeling in your gut that goes, I don't know, something's not right about this guy. When you get that, listen to it. The most powerful thing in the world, more powerful than a gut feeling could ever be, is women's intuition. If a woman ever says. I don't, and you may experience it. Are you married? Yes. Okay. I experienced it many, many times. 
Yeah, this is my come home from, oh, we were, we served together. And this was years ago. I haven't seen him in a long time. You're going to love this guy. He's great. He's funny. The guy comes over. Y'all have, y'all eat and you talk for hours. And it's the greatest time your wife's like, oh, yeah, he's, and, and you all get along like guys and, and have the best time at the end of the evening. He's, you hug him up real big. Yeah, man, it's good seeing you. And your wife's like, oh, it's great. I've heard so much about you. No sooner when he leaves is that door shut than she turns to you and says, don't you ever Bring that back in this house again. You understand what I'm saying? You say, let's say his name's Phil. What's wrong with Phil? And she'll say, I don't know. Something's just not right about him. And what's happened is, this is going to be horrifically boring, but I got to tell you this part of it. There are two parts of your brain that collect information and send it back to this thing called the locus ceruleus at 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 the base of the brain. The fusiform gyres and the mid-temporal gyres. The, the fusiform gyre sees all these little things happening situationally in someone's face that tells you this person is happy for real or not happy because you see all these little things moving or they're not what they're supposed to be. It doesn't, not, doesn't look right in your head. And the fusiform gyres captures all the big moves. And what she may be seeing, because women take in information, there's a difference in the, the female brain and the, and the male brain. There's actually a book called The Female Brain. You can go check out. It's a great book. Women take in a lot more information and can remember this information a lot better than men ever could or can. And when they take in, they're taking in everything they see. As she sees this guy talking to you, her brain's gathering stuff and things just don't look right. That's what's, that's a little locus ruleus back there. Uh, figuring that out, going, it's comparing it to everything she's ever seen, everybody she's ever seen talk to you, your kids talking to you, friends talking to you, compared to the way this guy's talking to you. She compared to the way he's looking around the room when he's talking or when you're talking. She's, looking at what he's, you know, paying just what he's looking at. She's not consciously, but she's seen all this stuff and it's going in. If it's not right, it tells her it's sitting right. I don't know what's right about that, that locus ruleus. But in the next couple of days, she'll be in the shower or she'll be driving when she's doing something she's always doing. The brain's just sitting there and that it gives it all that time to start running that locus ruleus at full blast. She'll go, I know what's wrong with that. She'll figure out what she didn't like about him. Yeah, I just didn't like him because here's what happened. This, this, and this. It'll go from, I don't know. I just don't like him too. Here's specifically what I didn't like about him or why I don't trust him. A lot of times you'll hear the word trust come into play. Scott, I understand you have something for our listeners today. Oh, yeah. We've got a, a course that we are, that if I go out and give a talk, that we, we have a course called Body Language Tactics. And it's at uh, bodylanguagetactics.com. And I'll put this up there. And I usually give out a... Um, um, a URL. I can't remember what it is because I haven't given it out in a long time. I've always got a, a screen up there. that goes, now I've got this course you can go take real quick. This thing is free. It walks you through the basics of body language. It might be body language basics or something. I'll have to take a look. I don't know. You can put that on there and tell them what it is. I'll tell you what it is when we get up here. But um, it, it just sort of walks you through the basics of body language. A lot of stuff we're talking about here and it's for people who are um, pitching something people just trying to get along with other people it's just the basics of body language and we've pulled it out of a couple of the different courses we've done we've got the the, the uh number one online body language course or, or a micro learning course online for body language and it's based out off of that and body language tactics is where the the course is but this thing is at a different url because we don't tell it to everybody but I'll, I'll give it to your people if you want scott can you share your social media links for both yourself and your company so people can reach out to you Sure. I'm at Twitter. It's at Scott Rouse three and on uh, LinkedIn. I think I'm Scott Rouse three as well. Cause everybody keeps taking Scott. Two other guys always get Scott Rouse and Scott Rouse one and two before I get there. And um, for Facebook, I think it's just Scott Rouse. And for, our, and for our listeners, we'll have the links to his uh, social media and his offer on the show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cavernishrblog.com. 
And also be sure to share the Kevin State Show podcast with your friends. So Scott, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you provide us any last minute advice or wisdom on anything you want to talk about? No, there are no absolutes in body language. Just because you've heard on TV, read in a magazine, seen a movie, that it means something every time when somebody scratches their nose or pulls their ear or one shoulder goes up. Don't believe that. It could be a myriad of different things. It could mean exactly what you think it means, but wait till you see a couple of other things around that and to help you make decisions about what you're actually seeing there. There's not one thing that'll tell you somebody's lying or telling the truth. I don't care what anybody tells you. That's the way, that's the way it is. So get that in your head and you'll be so far ahead of everyone else with that one little piece of information. Scott, thank you very much for that. And thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I've, I've been looking forward to this. I really have. And thanks so much for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cabinet HR Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and TikTok at Cabinet HR. Also check out our weekly live streams at the Cabinet HR Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Periscope, where we focus each week on an HR topic important for small business. These are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and last around three minutes. To join our weekly HR email newsletter list, send us an email to jasoncabinus at cabinetshr.com. Thank you, and remember to be great every day.